Welcome to Vegan Business Talk with Katrina Fox, author of Vegan Ventures, Start and Grow an Ethical Business. Hello and welcome to episode six of Vegan Business Talk. I'm Katrina Fox, journalist, media trainer and editor of veganbusinessmedia.com, the multimedia blog providing success tips for vegan business owners and entrepreneurs. In this episode, I interview Seth Tibbett, founder of Turtle Island Foods, which produces the range of renowned Tofurky alternative meat products. This is another audio interview that I did for my book, Vegan Ventures, Start and Grow an Ethical Business. And it was such a pleasure to interview Seth because he's run a vegan business for over 20 years and Tofurky has seen massive success. But it wasn't always like that. In fact, Seth had some really tough times and it actually took him many, many years before his business turned a profit. And I think it's really important for us to hear about the challenges and struggles that successful vegan entrepreneurs had, because sometimes we might be tempted to think that they had it cushy all the way along or they just got lucky. And that's rarely the case. And Seth's story certainly demonstrates that. So in this interview, Seth talks about the innovative strategy he took with his living arrangements when he couldn't afford conventional rent. (laughs) I love this and I think you will too. How Tofurky took off and hit the big time when Seth stopped conforming to how he thought a businessman should look and act. Really important lesson there. The importance of knowing when to fire yourself and delegate and much more. Here's the interview with Seth Tibbet of Turtle Island Foods. So tell me a bit about the why behind Tofurky. Um, you know, what's your purpose? What's your driver for, for running the company? <clears throat> well, uh, you know, it, it, it's all started uh, as I came into the business as an environmental uh, standpoint. I was a teacher naturalist in the Portland schools, and uh, I wanted to uh, raise some money to support environmental groups and education that I was working with. And little did I know that, you know, you don't just open your doors and become profitable enough so that you can support any businesses. Uh, but that was in 1980. And, uh, you know, that is still our mission is, um, you know, to have Foods that are, you know, the vegan foods that are affordable and delicious and innovative and that are within reach economically of, you know, the most people in the world and uh, to foster change. You know, now I know more uh, than I did when I was starting out about, um, you know, the connection between vegan diets and environmental destruction and you know we weren't so aware although i had read a book called diet for a small planet by francis Morla pay which is an old book in this country and it was in 1973 that i read it and she was talking about you know why are we feeding all these grains to animals uh which are a very inefficient protein machine when we could be eating them ourselves or feeding them directly to people. So that made a lot of sense to me. So, you know, um, that's our main, our main mission is to, uh, have create delicious vegan foods for people's health, the health of the planet, 
and the health of the animals, uh, farm animals in particular, that are very abused. So those are our three main pillars. Fantastic, fantastic. I love that. You touched on um, creating affordable food, and I think that's a really important point because I know some of the, the vegan business owners, and particularly those that are also wanting to run their businesses sustainably, you know, perhaps source organic materials, and they say that can be a bit of a challenge, particularly when they're starting out, um, is that because they have to raise their prices in order to, you know, either break even or make a bit of a profit. So I'm curious, how did you how did you kind of get over that, that challenge of, um, you know, producing Producing the high quality products and still being competitive and attracting people to buy? Well, it was a very long process. Um, you know, for the first 15 years before Tofurky, I was just making tempeh and I was making very little money. I was living on $300 a month in the US. Uh, and actually, that's when I built my treehouse because I didn't have any money to afford like a rent of a real house. So I rented three trees for $25 a month and spent $1,000 <laughs> building this tree house, which I lived in for uh, eight years while I was getting going. So we were, you know, very not profitable for uh, until really um, for the first 15, 20 years of, of our business, it was really, it was a right livelihood and, uh, I was, you know, losing my shirt financially, but living the dream of what I wanted to do. So, uh, you know, it, 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 the food business is really hard for, it's all built on volume. You know, you really have to, uh, sell a lot of product and make, you know, a, a nickel or a dime on each product as opposed to selling a few products and trying to make a dollar or something on that so there's um until we reached a certain you know we when 1995 which was 20 years ago when we invented uh the tofurkey that's when we started on the road to profitability and we were able to sell our products all across the country and then up into canada and europe and you know australia and so uh, in order to create you know money to pay everybody's health care and decent living wages and invest the money back in the business too. We had to sell quite a lot. So it was a 20 year struggle before we really became profitable. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. I think that's really important because sometimes when people see big companies, successful companies like yours, but they often think, oh, well, they must have gone from zero to, you know, success almost overnight. So I think it's really great that you're you're sharing that, that, that you know, there are those um, struggles in the beginning. So I guess it was it was that the, the, when you said it was, you know, you produced the tofurkey. So it was literally the fact that it was an innovative product ahead of its time that kind of kicked you into the profitability was that the turning point oh it really was and uh you know we were l lucky enough it was such a crazy product for a lot of people that didn't think like that anybody would be silly enough to market you know they didn't think there was this market first of all that but the, here was the, all these vegetarians and vegans who were left out of you know the christmas and thanksgiving dinner parties because it was just like they would have salad and they would have tomatoes and that's all great. You know, I love salad. I love potatoes, but you know, to have something like the meat eaters were having this grand feast and 
everything and uh, to have a protein, high protein substitute for turkey that sat in the middle of your table. Uh, you know, nobody had done that. So we were, we got a lot of uh, free advertising from TV and radio and movie stars and in movies and TV shows and that kind of thing that really popularized the concept, even though some of them were poking fun at us, you know, it was like, uh, you know, we, we like to take ourselves not too seriously and have some fun and our marketing, you know, sort of reflects that because people like to laugh. We, as a people, I think we're the otters of the universe. We, we like to have fun and we like to enjoy life and ourselves. And I think that resonates with people is just, Hey, here's some people that like to have fun. So it was a fun concept, a fun name. And we had contests where, you know, we asked people, what does a tofurkey look like in the wild? (laughs) And then people were drawing up all their little, you know, this is what they look like in the wild. And we had contests. So we just had tried to have fun. And, you know, before that, I really hadn't tried to have fun. Like I like to have fun. That's just who I am. I'm a fun loving person. And, uh, before Tofurky, I just tried to be something I wasn't, you know, I tried to be this straight businessman, like, cause I thought that's what you're supposed to look like, you know, and we didn't have anything. So we didn't have a lot of humor in our marketing. And then as soon as I started to sort of become more like who I was really, you know, like that really helped. It was like an authentic move. And so Tofurky sort of was an extension of this fun loving streak of mine. And it happened to work out. (laughs) Other people had fun with it too. That's a brilliant message. I think around that, being who you are because I think a lot of us you know we try and fit into those boxes you know when we, like you say when it's business somehow business is all serious and kind of grown up so I love that you you know you actually got your success through being you I think that's a, a wonderful message thank you for, for sharing that and um, so nowadays there um, obviously Tofurky was um, you know pioneering in its day now of course there are you know quite a few other products um, on the market how do you go about standing apart and and sort of maintaining your your place and in, in in the market now that you've kind of got, I guess, competitors or other people in the marketplace? That's a great question, you know, and, um, you know, we tend to look at uh, competitors for the most part as, uh, you know, it's, it's a positive thing because it's sort of the tide that lifts all boats. You know, if, if you have a category in a store, let's say diapers, and diapers are hot and growing and people are innovating and the categories supercharged, it's easier for you to take your new diaper and get placement on the shelf. And if the category is shrinking and not doing so well, then the space in the store shrinks and you come in with a your innovative diaper and people are like, you know, we don't, we have enough already. Thank you. We don't need that. So it's really, uh, you know, we try and look at it as opportunity for us and, you know, a positive thing because really, you know, you think of your life. I mean, I don't know if you drink, for instance, beer or wine, you know, but you rarely would buy the same 
beer or wine all the time or breakfast cereal or whatever. So, uh, you know, it's, it's healthy to have competitors. So we look at it like that, but we, you know, uh, we're, we're different than a lot of people in that, you know, we do have an old story and an authentic story, you know, and we grew very slowly without selling out to big businesses, you know, and that's one of our main things is that we're one of the few family-held independent uh, companies in the world, you know, because a lot of these um, little entrepreneurs that have moved on and sold to some of the big guys. So we enjoy being, uh, you know, family-held and independent. And also, you know, our, our ingredient string is a little different. You know, we base everything on what we call traditional soy products like tofu and tempeh that have had a history of being healthy. We don't use the isolates and concentrates and the powders and some of the more uh, intensive non-traditional uh, soy ingredients uh, in products. So we uh, kind of differ. You know, there's a bunch of different things, but those are two of them, you know, family held and independent and then basing it on organic soy that's traditionally processed, not heavily processed and industrialized soy. Excellent. Got it. Um, so you went through, your business went through the <clears throat> the global financial um, crisis and obviously survived. Um, what did you do from a business perspective? Or did it even affect you? Because actually a couple of business aspects you said it kind of didn't even really affect them, which was kind of interesting. So I'm just curious, did it impact you in a big way? And if so, what, what did you do to get through that? Uh, I assume you're talking about like 2008. Yeah, the G yeah. Sorry, what they call it in America? We call it the GFC or Global Financial Crisis. You know, the big uh, yeah downturn. Yeah. It, you know, it had some effect. Uh, you know, what mainly the effect was uh, it raised. You know, we had a lot of our basic commodity ingredients uh, like uh, the soya and wheat and uh, canola oil they skyrocketed in price. So uh, we did have to raise prices then. We had a major price increase. Um, you know, it was a it was a very interesting time. It wasn't, because of that, it wasn't our most profitable year. We still made profit, but we, um, and we still had some nice growth during that time. But, you know, people uh, say, people said the same thing to me about 1980. They said, oh, you, were very brave, you know, you started your business during a recession. It was a terrible time for small business. And I was like, <laughs> I was too stupid to know it was a, there, there was a recession or whatever on there, you know, and I don't know, I don't understand global markets, you know, or, you know, things I do understand, you know, some of the basics, but some of that stuff does just fly over your head, you know, and you you know, you're not involved in it, but, um, you know, you have to stay uh, fleet of foot and adjust, make adjustments. Mainly we just had to, the main impact was just because our costs went skyrocketing, we had to raise our prices a little bit too. Not a, as much as we probably should have, but we did raise them and, um, yeah got you through yeah for sure sure excellent that's awesome um so how do you go about you've now obviously your company has grown um substantially how do you go about finding and keeping experienced and motivated staff 
You know, uh, first of all, have, having our plant in Hood River has been a really nice uh, feature, you know, because it's such a beautiful, desirable place to live. Uh, you know, we just, <clears throat> our CFO just came in a couple of years ago from San Diego and he was working for a far bigger company, you know, which had a far bigger salary. But, you know, the lifestyle <clears throat> that, uh, and our marketing director too, you know, just came here uh, looking for, uh, you know, a, a more balanced lifestyle. And uh, we try and be really, you know, family friendly and respectful of people's needs and just uh, also be, you know, we know, I mean, I, I used to do everything. I know how hard it is to work every job. I've had every job here, you know, at one time or another, and I know how hard it is. So when you, when you have that in your heart, you know, it really brings you respect for the people and you really want to treat people um, as well as you can, because that's, that's really the first, I mean, it's nice. We, we give a lot of money to, different nonprofits and groups that share our ideals. But we also believe that, you know, success begins at home and just taking care of, you know, the, the workers and everything. And uh, my, my stepson, Jamie, who's just taking over the company, you know, I'm 63. And so I'm handing him the reins, you know, he's <clears throat> uh, vision is there's a, a, type of corporation here called a B Corp that oh, yeah. is uh, it measures you as being, I don't know if you're familiar with the term, like socially responsible, right. how you treat, you know, it's everything on how do you buy from sustainable sources and how do you treat your employees? How do you uh, treat the community that you, you know, work in? And there's all these different things. So uh, we're just getting certified as that. And so people, you know, I think uh, it's not always, you know, the top dollar that people want. They they want, you know, to feel like they're working for a good cause and a company that they believe in and in also looking for lifestyle uh, changes, too. Yeah, that's really, really important. You mentioned that you did everything and at one point you were doing everything. Do you have any advice for business owners who can sometimes feel completely overwhelmed? They're so busy kind of working in their business, they don't really have time to work on it and, you know, do that big picture stuff to grow. So they kind of get stuck. Do you have any tips for how to, to deal with that kind of overwhelm? <clears throat> that's a great question. Um, you know, like we grew very differently than uh, most of the startups that I see today. Uh, like I've invested in a vegan cheese company and I'm watching them go through it. But, you know, from day one, they're paying themselves, you know, some pretty big salaries. They're not even, you know, selling yet. And they're, they're paying these big salaries. And they also, uh, there's quite a few companies over here now that have gone to Silicon Valley and gotten, big investments from outside investments, you know, before they even make any money at all, they're, they're in debt up to their eyeballs and they have a lot of people helping them. It's just a different way of doing business. We're the uh, anomaly over here, you know, having just gone slowly and with, with that slow build, you know, it is very stressful. And, um, 
I think knowing when to fire yourself from jobs is very important. And uh, what I've noticed is that uh, every time I fired myself from, you know, the main job, uh, it gets better. The job gets better, done better, because you have somebody, you know, you're trying to juggle all these balls. Yeah. So you're only able to devote a certain amount of uh, attention to it. Um, and then when you hire somebody that all they do is that. And if you hire the right person, then yeah. it's really good. So knowing when to fire yourself, I guess, and not being afraid to... <clears throat> have your eye on a bigger picture, you know, for a, a, a long time, I was paying, you know, my director of sales more money than I was making. And, you know, it drive my wife crazy, you know, like a little <laughs> bit, but, um, you know, it was looking towards the future because you knew that, you know, those sales were going to keep going and keep giving back. And so uh, I think that just knowing when to fire and, you know, as soon as you can find some good people that uh, can work, you know, being fair and don't be afraid to take less money to build a long-term company, I would say. Right. It's great advice. On the topic, I suppose you touched on a little bit there around kind of mindset. And I'm, I'm, I'm guessing a lot of business owners say that owning their own business is the biggest form of personal development because it forces you to grow as a person. Um, I'm curious, what are the key lessons that you've learned and, and perhaps what qualities do you feel that people need to run their own business? Uh, I think most of all, they need to uh, have perseverance. And, you know, a, a sense that they're in it for the long haul. You know, I think that uh, our business worked because it had to work. Like, I didn't have, you know, a fallback option. I moved up here, you know, an hour and a half from Portland into the middle of the woods with this tempeh business. And, I, you know, I don't know what I would have done if that, if that had a uh, collapse. And, you know, I have seen businesses like uh, a friend of mine started a vegan cheese business like years ago before, like right now, vegan cheese is a hot supercharged yeah. category. It's expanding. Yeah. But back, so he was one of the first ones. He had a great product, a great idea, but he had, was a ex child like actor on American television. And he uh, had like money coming in from that. And so he would go, oh, yeah, I'm not going to make cheese, you know, right now. So I'm going to go to Japan for a month. I'll make more when I get back. It didn't have to work for him, you know. Like somebody has to be like, I'm going to make this work. I'm just totally committed, you know. It's like the commitment and really the, the perseverance. I mean, I probably should have. You know, most people would say 20 years, like you're not making money. Maybe uh, did you ever think of, I don't know, maybe you were doing the wrong thing. But <laughs> I never really, uh, well, seriously considered not doing it. I did consider it, but mostly it was, you know, something I, I guess I believed in. I'm just stubborn and I think turning the key every day, you know, and just showing up for work and sticking around, sticking around until something catches fire and you know that's really 
all I did was, you know, because we had products before that that didn't catch fire, you know, and uh, every time you fail, you know, you learn, you know, it's like, don't be afraid to fail. Failure is probably as good a teacher as success, maybe better, you know, um, but, but just having <laughs> the perseverance to uh, pick the lessons up and pick yourself off the floor and try something else. Absolutely. That's brilliant advice. Do you have any strategies that you use personally to kind of, I guess, to keep yourself kind of your your mental and emotional well-being quite strong? I don't know if you do anything. Obviously, you're around nature, which I'm guessing is probably beautiful. Do you do anything like, I don't know, coaching, personal development, meditation, any kind of strategies that you use that you find, you know, just help you to, to cope, particularly as the company's grown? I just think... Uh Taking time for yourself and your own, having hobbies outside, you know, uh, the business, not having the business be your, your sole point of contact with reality, you know. I mean, I played like frisbee golf. I liked hiking, you know. I liked uh, just uh, traveling, you know. I always tried to mix it up and just so that you had uh, different points. Like when I built the tree house, that was fun, you know, and it was fun. And then I travel around and I see other tree houses and just to have, uh, you know, to be not so narrowed in on, you know, your own little rut, um, that, uh, you can't see outside of it. It's important to have, I think, you know, many points of contact and to be taking care of yourself while you have this, baby business that you're growing and not give all your time to it. Yeah. Very like important. The only difference between a rut and a grave are the dimensions they say. So <laughs> you don't want to. <laughs> That's a very good point. Um, Seth, for those that um, people then who are a they're in, at the moment, they're in employment, they've got their regular job, whether it's nine to five, whatever the hours are, what things should, but they, they aspire to, you know, run their own uh, vegan run business, whether it's servicing the, the vegan community specifically or the greater community. What are the key things that you think they should take into account before making that leap from employment to employed, uh, from employed, sorry, to self-employed? That's a great uh, <clears throat> point. You know, I think uh, really clarifying in your own self, you know, what your goals are uh, financially and what your goals are, uh, you know, for your life, for your meaning, how much, um, you know, time you're able to devote to this. But, um, you know, and is there a... Uh, do you have a strategy of, you know, survival, like through lean years? Do you have savings that you can draw back on? And, uh, you know, it's, it's a, it's a leap of faith, any start of a business. Um, and just knowing, I, I guess knowing what is your, what are your skill set and, What's your unfair advantage, you know, that you have over all the other uh, businesses that are maybe starting out, you know, in this area? You know, like in the beginning, my unfair advantage was I had already made tempeh for years in my uh, like home. And so I knew sort of a little bit more because there were all these other little tempeh shops starting up and 
I remember even competing with those. Uh, you know, so you always have to have an unfair advantage in, you know, one thing that's different for you than the competition, you know, and then with Tofurky, our unfair advantage was we were the first ones in the market with it, you know, and so there was uh, like other brands that soon came on and tried to duplicate it. But because the story was new for us, like we were first in the market, uh, we had all of this press and brand recognition and names and that really uh, created an unfair advantage for us. So um, really being realistic with yourself and um, knowing, you know, I mean, maybe your unfair advantage is you're a wizard at marketing and you have a friend at a advertising firm that will is willing to work for cheap, you know, or get the word out. Or you have a contact to, a, I don't know, a celebrity that'll, you know, but um, I think you need to realistically assess, uh, assess what your advantage over the other people that are going to have that same idea or that are in that field. Like what's, what do you have that they don't have? Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. That's great. In terms of the word vegan, we're touching on sort of the last section now, which is kind of around marketing and PR. So in terms of using the word vegan, some people say, oh, well, you know, you shouldn't, if you use the word vegan, it can scare people away. And the other idea is, you know, it's actually very clever niche marketing. Can you tell me what your thoughts are on that and your choice of how and when you use the word in your marketing materials and how prominently you use it or not and why? It's a great question. And, you know, <clears throat> I've just been studying the history of meat alternatives in the United States. And I I came across some articles. I mean, there were all these crazy names, even like 100 years ago, that people were trying to, like, how do we describe our food, you know, to people? And I don't, you know, we, we continually, we continue to have that conversation and we experiment with plant-based and vegan and vegetarian and um, you know, lately we've been using plant-based quite a bit, you know, meat-free, uh, has been thrown out there. So I think we're still having that conversation. I don't know if I have, uh, the total answer to that, you know, and it's different in different countries too. I'm not sure, uh, how it is in Australia. One of the reasons why I'm going there to find out, but you know, in, um, Germany right now, I know that, um, do you know about Vegans, the uh, yes. supermarket chain? Yes, yeah. Yeah. So we're selling there, and I was over there in Berlin in April, and, uh, you know, I met with this vegan activist over there, and he told me that in Germany, you know, I mean, obviously, in Germany, vegan is, it's a supercharged category. It's a jet stream right now, you know, and people are all, it's a very, it's, it seems more like a positive word. It, it doesn't have as many negative connotations as it does in the U S and the guy was saying that, uh, the main reason people are vegans over there is because of their concern for animals. They don't think it's like particularly a healthy diet. Like their sort of attitude is like, well, I'll do this for the animals. I know it's not the best diet for me, <laughs> you know, and in the United States, it's the opposite. It's like people are like, well, what's it going to do for me? Is it going to make me lose weight or be more attractive or whatever, <laughs> healthier? 
you know, and then they're, oh, yeah, and the animals too. Yeah, that's that's nice little side benefit. But it was interesting how the word vegan seemed to be more um, accepted as like it was, you know, trendy in Berlin. I mean, that was it was a fabulous. Berlin's a fabulous city for the vegans, and uh, I really enjoyed it. Wow, have you amazing. been to Europe? Um, yeah, I was last in Berlin because I'm from the UK. There? I grew up in London, so um, I went to Berlin in I was back in 1991. It wasn't vegan friendly then, so I'm actually delighted to hear um, to see how it's progressed because it's such a big meat eating culture. You know, for breakfast, it's like you know you go in and there's like you know just masses and masses of meat that they're eating. So I, it's I think it's great that I've, I've heard that it's you know it's becoming more veganized. It's uh, it's very interesting. So you see the word vegan in Australia um, it's mixed it's kind of almost like Australia's always a little bit behind the US um, and the UK I guess for that matter but particularly the US and obviously you know we often kind of pick up on what's happening in the US um, so we're still a bit behind so but it's starting to become more popular like because um, I'm a journalist so I've you know written pieces around animal advocacy and veganism and um, just the fact that I'm able to even get those, some of those published um, I think shows a little bit of a shift um, obviously the comments get quite sort of mixed but um, I think people are still a little bit um, scared of it. It's more kind of, I think, plant-based. You know, people are a little less threatened by. Um, we've got a vegetarian butcher here, Susie Spoon's vegetarian butcher. So that's kind of interesting. A word vegetarian is kind of less scary. So we're still in that kind of um, space here in Australia. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, it's fascinating. So just on, Marty, you mentioned that you've already had, when you first got going, you had a lot of PR, you had a lot of media. What about nowadays? Like, do you actively or proactively seek media coverage as part of your PR and marketing strategy? Or are you at a stage now where the press just kind of come to you automatically? Um, you know, we definitely, uh, you know, as a mature brand that's been around for a while, um, we don't get as much, you know, press as some of the new sexier, you know, startups that there's always got to be a new story, you know, um, and this, the press, of course, they, they feed off of like, what's the new cutting edge thing. And there's always a story. We, uh, you know, we find whereas before the press more just comes to us and it still sometimes comes to us, but to really get uh, press now, you know, we really have to be more proactive about uh, hiring, you know, public relations and, you know, we work social media a lot because um, that's an easier uh, way to get sort of attention now as opposed to, you know, convincing a newspaper to write about you. You can just put it out there and then try and get it to go viral. But, sure. uh, yeah, we, uh, you know, it's a story. Right now we're, we're going, in the lead-up to Thanksgiving, we're kind of going back in time because this is the 20th year for Tofurky, and right. Tofurky Roast has been such an iconic product in Thanksgiving. I mean, it's still the number one selling, you know, meat alternative at Thanksgiving and for the roasts and everything. But uh, we're going back and to those people that have 
always for years now they've said i've already done that story now they're like oh that's 20 years so you know yeah i'll run that again because it's like a flashback it's like a time yeah. machine so uh but it's it's always hard to uh you know have a different slant or a different hook for the media we always try and have something uh, yeah but sure. it's it's more of a challenge now in the early days they would just they'd find us you know or it would just show up on tv and you'd go whoa we had no idea <laughs> what was coming out you know how nice until the phone started ringing and they were like oh did you know you were just on this show or that show <laughs> something Fantastic. so um yeah. everything has its cycle Absolutely. You mentioned social media, Seth. Which social media platforms are you most active on and which are most successful for you in brand building or generating sales? Twitter and Facebook, uh, definitely. You know, we're, we should be doing more with Instagram and Pinterest, but we're just developing those right now. Uh, but, you know, like, for instance, Twitter has been uh, a good one. Like on Thanksgiving morning, we used to have people that would come in on Thanksgiving morning and sit by the phone waiting for people to call with their questions about, hey, I didn't thaw the tofurkey roast. How do I cook it now? Or is this still good? Or what, you know, it was like a hotline and you'd get, I don't know, you know, uh, all these calls from people on the phone on Thanksgiving morning. And you'd help them through their crises. Now it's all, we don't even do that anymore. It's all Twitter. You know, it's right. people uh, asking questions on, tw they'll ask the same questions, but they'll just tweet it to you. And, you know, you can respond in real time. And it's cool because a lot of them, <clears throat> too, will um, post their photos of their Doverky roast that they had at their house, you know, and they have a lot of pride in it, uh, either on Facebook or Twitter. Yeah, I did that two years ago <laughs> when I was in LA. I was, I was my first ever tofurkey. I was at my friend Karen Dawn's. Um, oh, Karen Dawn, you know Karen Dawn. Yeah, I stayed with Karen. It was my first time to LA, and she was lovely. And she had this just amazing. I had heard about this amazing Thanksgiving um, dinner that she did, so I was so honoured to be there. And it was just so lovely because I was taking photos and posting it on Facebook. So yeah, that's Thanks. a great way to get it out there. That's fantastic. Fantastic. Um, so my final two questions, Seth, are just in systems. Um, when you mail out, I guess you've got a mailing list that you email to people. Mm -hmm. Do you know what system you use, like Infusionsoft, Entreport, MailChimp, any of those? I don't know if you know that if you're, someone else does that for you. You know, that's a question for Erin. She's just getting okay. revitalized because we've fallen down on that a little bit, you know, uh, and that was one of her jobs that we gave her when she hired so she's just getting that going but um if you send me an email with that question i can get that answer oh cool okay and the other one was just what other technology tools or apps do you find most useful in the course of running your business maybe that's another question for Erin. yeah that's probably another question for Erin. you know um because she comes from a big like uh branding agency background and she um, you know, I know is doing this um, big, she's doing a Pinterest thing now with um, all these bloggers where they're going to cook a tofurkey feast and then pin it on Pinterest and, uh, you know, do that. So nice, nice. It'll be Very interesting to see good. how some of her stuff goes, but um, she's real savvy too. 
Fantastic. Is there, is there anything else you'd like to add, Seth? That's all my questions. Thank you so much for taking the time to answer them. Uh, you know, it's it's really uh, thrilling to me to see um, not just tofurkey, but you know, vegan products in general um, going attaining popularity worldwide. You know, um, that's one of the areas that I'm working on the most right now is international sales because it um, <clears throat> it's like what I enjoy, you know, like I started the business from nothing and, you know, you just have that. That's, that's what fires my engines. Uh, so like when you look at a country like Australia where there hasn't been sales and we're going over, and it's like starting over again. It's like starting a new business and that's yeah. what I'm, uh, I enjoy and it's great to see that. So we're doing that. We're selling to Brazil, which I never thought would be a good country, but it, it's going well there. Uh, Iceland, you know, Germany, Europe, UK, even have uh, a, a guy that I'm working with in Iran, of all places. Oh, wow, um, really? Wow. To, for, you know, uh, the Middle East, <clears throat> we have queries from Israel we're following up on and um, it's just nice to see uh, it, that it's not like just a, you know, North American or U.S. phenomenon, that it's just people are waking up all over the world and finding that, uh, you know, plant-based proteins are a great way to go from so many angles. So that was Seth Tibbet from Tofurkey. You can find out more about Seth and Tofurky at tofurky.com. And as usual, that link is on the show notes page at veganbusinessmedia.com forward slash podcasts. Now for our vegan business news roundup. The media has been all over the fact that Ben and Jerry's has launched a non-dairy vegan ice cream range. Vegans are divided on this. Some are delighted and can't wait to get their hands on it, while others have been quick to point out the importance of supporting all vegan ice cream companies who use no dairy in any of their products. And it's an interesting debate. And whatever your thoughts, the fact that a huge brand like this is introducing a vegan range is certainly notable. Now, on the subject of large brands, Hellman's have launched what's effectively a vegan mayonnaise. Now, the funny thing about this is you might remember Unilever, which is Hellman's parent company, very publicly sued Hampton Creek, makers of the vegan Just Mayo, because it insisted mayonnaise must have eggs. (laughs) Now, Hellman's has announced its own eggless product, rather clunkily named carefully crafted dressing and sandwich spread. (laughs) I don't know who in marketing came up with that. It's a right mouthful and it's not exactly catchy. (laughs) So it seems that Hellman's have taken on the philosophy of if you can't beat them, join them. According to Metro newspaper in the UK, Hampton Creek see the move as a positive one in the aim to make plant-based foods more accessible to the masses. So good on Hampton Creek for being so gracious. And I think that really shows the difference between companies that are only in business for the money and for profit and those that also have a greater mission and a bigger why. Now, this next story should surely be given an award for irony. Big Pork has lashed out at the newly launched Herbisaurus vegan butcher in the US, criticising the startup as, wait for it, 
unethical for daring to use the word butcher. (laughs) Writing on the National Hog Farmer blog, editor Cheryl Day lambasted Herbisaurus's marketing as plain unethical and wrong on all levels. (laughs) Wow. This had me laughing out loud when I found out about it. This is an industry that has at its very heart violence, abuse and killing of sentient smart animals. But yeah, a vegan business is the bad guy and unethical. (laughs) Well, I guess the fact that this new vegan butcher has got a ton of media coverage means we've got the meat industry running scared. So yay for the vegan butcher. And finally, popular vegan restaurant chain Hip City Veg is coming to Washington in the US. The Philadelphia-based brand announced plans to open in the nation's capital early this year, reports the Washington Post. Vegan fast food is its speciality, and as well as the new location in Washington, Hip City Veg, that's such a great name, isn't it? I love it. Hip City Veg also plans to open a third eatery in Philadelphia. It's always lovely to see a vegan business expanding. So that's it for this episode of Vegan Business Talk. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you enjoyed the show, please consider giving it a review and rating on iTunes or any other platform that you're listening on. I'm Katrina Fox of veganbusinessmedia.com and I look forward to catching up with you in the next episode. Bye for now.